This is Americana Podcast, the 51st state. Welcome back, Americana podcast listeners. I know it's been a while since our last episode, but I am pleased to say that we're back on schedule and really excited about what we have for you in the coming months. In case you're new here, we at Americana Podcast are a platform that is dedicated to educating and expanding on the topic of Americana music through conversations with the artists making it. Whether musicians agree with the label or not, we think it's important that music be defined first and foremost by those who bring it into the world for our enjoyment. For this hour to an hour and a half, we celebrate the luminaries and trailblazers of the genre. This show is usually hosted by Robert O'Keen, but due to some scheduling conflicts, he will be out for the next few episodes. And I, Clara Rose, your producer, will be stepping in as host. And on a final note before we're back to business as usual, if you're a longtime listener, you know this show is a labor of love, and for four years we have remained ad-free. If you like what we do here and want to support the show, we now have a digital tip jar. If you want to contribute, you can find it at tiptopjar slash Americana Podcast. And if you leave a name with your donation, I will include it as a sponsor name for this show in next month's episode. So again, to find that, you go to tiptopjar slash Americana Podcast or check out the link in the episode description. Thank you. And now I can move on to our actual programming. We have a very special guest on this episode. Today, we're diving into the rich tapestry of the extraordinary songwriter Gretchen Peters. Peters grew up next to the legendary Greenwich Village folk scene, and then she moved to Colorado where she cut her teeth as a performer and finally settled in Nashville at the height of the traditional country to pop country split in the 90s and early aughts. Peters' story is something that music journalists and authors could only dream of living. She has etched her name into the walls of American music history with her poignant lyrics and haunting melodies. In the early 90s, Peters released her debut album, The Secret Life, which quickly garnered attention for its lyrical depth and Peters' distinctive, emotive voice. Throughout her illustrious careers, Peters has penned songs that resonate with raw, emotional honesty and capture complexities of the human condition. Her songs have been cut by the likes of Martina McBride and Trisha Yearwood, and she has been a long-standing advocate for musicians' rights in an increasingly complicated industry that looks more and more like a battleground every day. Having recently retired from touring, it's time to take stock of Peter's immeasurable impact on music. So join us today as we speak with Gretchen Peters about her serendipitous career, women's music and country and Americana, and whether or not there really is a difference between being a songwriter and being a performer. I'm your producer and host, Clara Rose, and this is Americana Podcast, the 51st State. I don't think to about you anymore We weren't much more than kids It was nearly 20 years ago I shut my bed door 
five minutes Not much time to reminisce I mean, first, I'd really like to kind of talk about um, whenever you started. I, I read that you wrote your first song when you were five. Yeah, I don't <laughs> think I realized that I was writing a song, but I was mm -hmm. in the backseat on a car trip board. And, you know, my sister and I were relegated to the backseat. We, 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 I grew up in New York, and so we had relatives in Chicago. So there was this car trip that we took a lot between New York and Chicago. And that's mm -hmm. kind of, yeah, it's a long way for a kid. And at some point, we we're in the backseat of the car, and she and I made up a song. Mm -hmm. And it was sad. It was about rain or something. Yeah. Um, but weirdly, I didn't actually think... It didn't actually really dawn on me that people wrote songs mm -hmm. for like years and years after that because I was around music so much as a little kid. It just seemed like it was elemental, like it was just in the atmosphere. And, you know, my older sister was listening to the Beatles and Bob Dylan and those songs, especially the Beatles songs, because they were so fully realized and fully produced. They just mm -hmm. seemed like untouchable like they were just there um and it when when she brought bob dylan records into the house it started making sense to me that you could that a person could make that sound because mm -hmm. it was just a person and a guitar and i had you know i learned to play when i was seven so i played bob dylan songs a lot because it was doable mm -hmm. it was reachable but it wasn't until years later that i sort of it, it just dawned on me, wait a minute, you can, you can make them up too. Mm -hmm. You know, I think maybe late teens, mm -hmm. I know that sounds crazy, but I spent, you know, the time from like age seven to 17 absorbing songs that other people had written, learning them, learning to play them, you know, in public, learning the guitar chords, figuring out what they were doing. And I don't think I realized it, but I was actually, what I was doing was learning the DNA of, of a song, mm -hmm. basically, how it's put together, which was a great education, but I didn't, you know, realize that I was doing that. Right. I just wanted to learn how to do the thing that those people were doing. And when did you have like a moment where it really like settled in for you that it's something that you wanted to do? Like, when was that for you? Because I also read that you played a lot in when you moved in, moved to Boulder. I played in bars in Colorado, mm -hmm. you know, almost for almost 10 years. I mean, from the time I was probably, you know, 17 mm -hmm. till my late 20s, mid late 20s. Um, and again, you know, I wasn't focused on songwriting. I, I mean, when you play in bars, at least it, definitely back in those days, you played five or six nights a week in a bar, then you'd move on to the next one. And you had to play what all the people in the bar wanted to hear, especially the dancers. Like you had to totally tailor your, tailor your set to, you know, whatever the dancers wanted to dance to, which meant like it all had to be up tempo, mm -hmm. which was just like ugh, the worst <laughs> thing about it for me because I love slow, sad songs. And, you know, you could put maybe two of those in a set, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I think it was... You know, I was on the track to go to college and I was, I went to University of Colorado in Boulder and mm -hmm. I was a, first I was a, an art history major, then I was a humanities major. I was clearly like 
groping around for some kind of something that I could study that was studying the creative arts mm-hmm. or, or contributing to the maybe or, but you know, nothing really seemed like it fit. I was really interested in, in and good at, um, you know, things like English and art history and that sort of thing. But simultaneously I started playing in clubs, you know, around that same age, like first year in college. And I, I think at that point it was just like, yeah, there's no turning back Mm -hmm. now. This is what I'm going to do. And I, I told my parents, luckily I was the last of four children. So they were kind of exhausted at that point. And I said, you know, if I'm going to drop out of college, but if I don't make it in a year, Mm -hmm. which is so funny, you know, like a year. Yeah. Um, I'll go back to college. Mm-hmm. And they were kind of like, yeah, sure, sure you will. But <laughs> I think at that point it was, um, I know my parents were divorced, uh, mm-hmm. had divorced long before that. And my mother, who I lived with, she knew, I think she knew before I did. She said, she later on, many years later, she said, I, it was obvious what you were going to do. You were wandering around the house, like, you know, staring off into space. And then you'd go to the piano or you'd go to the guitar. It was just, it was, it was really obvious, but it wasn't so obvious to me. I mean, when you're mm-hmm. that age and you're kind of groping around for, God, I'm going to be an adult soon. What am I going to do? Mm-hmm. It, it, it wasn't so, it wasn't so obvious so quickly. Cause there ain't no boat, there ain't no train to take us Before I moved to Nashville, I I discovered country music. Really, mm-hmm. I hadn't grown up with it because I grew up in New York, right? Um, very, you know, like five miles away from where the, the you know the folk scene was was just happening. It almost felt like it was happening in our backyard. And I was a kid, you know, eight nine year old kid, and I was, you know, when I would hear Janice Ian on the radio, I was like, well, she's our girl, you know, she's mm-hmm. local. Um, I didn't realize that it was happening all over the world, you know, but that was the music that I was kind of just focused on and steeped in. And I was unaware of country music because it was New York mm-hmm. and it didn't reach us there. And then when I moved to Boulder, those, you know, all the kind of country rock hippie bands, you know, like the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band and just all of those, all of those bands that kind of, uh, you know, Graham Parsons came through all the time. All those bands that kind of were the big bang of country rock, mm-hmm. you know, that the beginnings of that, what is now, I guess, considered Americana. Um, I discovered that and I loved it. It really spoke to me the same way folk music did because it was about stories mm-hmm. and it was, the music was relatively simple, but the stories were the thing and the lyrics were the thing. And that was, you know, right up my alley so I started reading the backs, you know, the, the backs of the albums, and I found all these people like Merle Haggard wrote that song, and George Jones recorded that song, and Mickey Newberry wrote that song, and like I went, I, I had this like connection. It was almost like my my dealer, but I had this connection at a used record store, and I would go in and and say, you know, 
who's Merle Haggard and what can you tell? Because this guy had lived in Nashville. So mm -hmm. he, had, he had the key to the door, <laughs> you know, the door of knowledge. Um, and it was not cool to be a country music fan in Boulder in 1978. You know, mm -hmm. it was definitely not, not cool. So I went to him and I kind of fed myself all these records from Nashville. And eventually I realized that that was what I wanted to do. I want, mm -hmm. I mean, that I felt this, you know, folk music had kind of was not the thing anymore. And this country, the thing about country music that just hooked me was the emotion of it, plus the storytelling aspect, plus the simplicity of it. Mm -hmm. um, and I started kind of setting my sights on going there at some point. Um, I was playing with bands, you know, at night during this whole time. And finally, I had at, at the point when, when I finally decided to go to Nashville, I'd made a couple trips and knocked on some doors and gotten in to see a few people and gotten some kind of encouragement, you know, mm -hmm. a little. And um, I was married, had a small child at the time, and my husband at the time uh, lost his job. And we just said, there's no time like now to move because, you know, we can we can be poor there. We can be poor here. You mm -hmm. know, we might as well try there. And, and we packed up the U-Haul and and moved everything in retrospect it was it should have been terrifying but mm -hmm. i was i was too excited to be scared i guess and it feels like there's a lot of people that were kind of like coming up during that time specifically as well whenever you get into the folk and americana or what would become the americana scene later as well you get steve earl and lyle love it yeah and one yeah. of the things that i have to say that was really encouraging to me was that um my my husband, my now ex husband, mm -hmm. was a DJ uh, at the time, but before he lost his job, and you know he was at a country station, and they were suddenly they were playing Nancy Griffith and mm -hmm. Steve Earle, and and I I thought, well, if they can find a place in Nashville, then maybe I can too. And actually, indeed, when I got to Nashville, I signed it with a publisher who also had Steve Earle on the roster too, and mm -hmm. so I I was you know I I felt like that was the obvious place for me and that maybe a folky turned country music uh, fanatic like I was would be able to fit in as well as somebody like Steve or Nancy. Going back to Nashville Thinking about the whole thing Guess you gotta run sometimes Maybe I'm a fast train Rolling down the mountain Watching all my life go by You're a distant memory You're an exit sign So did you have, like find your community here kind of right off the bat? And I know that there's a little bit of, there was more of a divide between songwriter and then singer. Huge divide. There was yeah. a huge divide between, I mean, one of the, baffling things to me when I first came to town was everywhere I would take, you know, I would take my little cassette demo and everywhere I would go, I would get the question, well, do you want to be a singer or do you want to be a songwriter? And in general, and if I got advice from whoever it was, it was kind of split 50, 50. It was kind of like, you know, you ought to focus on the songwriting part of it. Or they would say, well, you ought to focus on the artist part of it and let somebody, you know, it was just, it was completely baffling. And I, I just kept 
wondering why I had to decide mm-hmm. because I had come up, you know, emulating people like Paul Simon and Joni Mitchell and Bob Dylan. And I mean, it was like they all they did both. They all did bo- all of it. And mm-hmm. I wanted to do all of it. So I found that really, really, really confusing. And the other thing I found confusing was that um, it, it, I was very, very heavily and strongly encouraged to co-write, mm-hmm. which I'd never done. Um, but I, I, I sort of, I sort of took all of that in. And then I thought, you know, as I began to see how things worked, I thought, well, if you want to do all the things, if you want to write and record and tour and do everything, if you want to be a full, fully fledged singer songwriter, go get a publishing deal because you have, you're going to have to prove that you can write before anybody will let you record your own songs. Mm-hmm. Cause it'll be, a, I think my, my, my reasoning was it would be a bigger fight, a bigger mountain to climb if I got a record deal right off the bat. And then I had to prove that I could write, if I could get, a, you know, some success as a songwriter under my belt, maybe that would help me, you know? So, um, so that was my, that was my um, sort of tactic, and I did get a publishing deal within, you know, three months of getting here, which seemed good. Mm-hmm. Um, and what ended up happening to me is that that worked out better than I ever dreamed it would in terms of, you know, having success with other artists recording my songs, which I'm eternally grateful for, but it did have one... I guess negative effect and that was everybody decided I was a songwriter. Yeah. It was just like, okay, that's you in your box. Yeah. The flip um, side of getting cuts. Yeah, and 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 a lot of people said even even my ex-husband said, "Why would you want to go out there and beat yourself up on the road when you can stay home and write songs?" And I just thought because it's who I am, because mm-hmm. it's like because to not do that would be to just completely negate and shove into a, a closet all the other parts of what I want to do. So, um, so that was a, that was kind of a, a sort of a, a box I had to fight my way out of mm-hmm. after a while. Yeah. Um, and well, there's so much energy that comes from a tour, like the life of a touring musician too. Like it's, you get feedback from a live audience that you might not get in a co-writing space oh, or with a publisher. Totally. And I, you know, the thing is, at every stage of the process, there's a, a kind of a, a delay, like, you know, you don't know how the song's going to be, you write the song, you don't know really how it's ultimately going to be received by people. You've, there's The only part of the process that's immediate is when you're on stage mm-hmm. and there's an audience there. And that transaction happens instantly, and you can't take it back. And the result of that is it's, to me, the most, the closest I get to being in the flow. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm never thinking, or if I'm doing it right, at least, I'm never thinking ahead or behind. I'm just, I'm trying to be present with the song and with the audience, and we're all having a moment. And that is my church, you know? So that's like, without that part of it, uh, all the rest of it would be a lot harder. I'm not a performer. I'm not a writer. But... All of my friends are, my family is, that whole thing. Um, And it's one of those things that you always hear about that those 
couple of hours on stage, it feels like this really sacred space. Yes. Yeah. That it's, it feels like it sounds otherworldly. And that gets misinterpreted so much by people that, that are peripherally involved Mm -hmm. in the music business. Like they, like one of my least favorite things is, um, you know, when someone who's had tons, an artist who's had tons of success goes back out on the road again and people say, what is he doing that we, he doesn't, he can't need the money. What's he doing it for? And I'm like, do you not get it? Yeah. I mean, do you not, do, you're not getting it, you yeah. know? Maybe it's not or about they, the money. Or they think it's not, maybe it's not about money, it's about ego, like mm-hmm. it's ego driven. Um, now granted, that happens for sure, but I think, live performance at its best really is about losing yourself mm-hmm. in it, not gaining some kind of ego gratification or, I mean, of course, you know, it's wonderful to make money. That's really fun, you mm-hmm. know, but I mean, at, at its purest and at its best, it's really about losing yourself, not, um, not gaining something for yourself. But I think, I think it's, it's very common for people on the periphery to, not see that Mm -hmm. and i find it i find it so irritating (laughs) (laughs) it it is kind of irritating because you know that it's it's... well it's making it's sort of assigning these sort of baser uh wants or desires to Mm -hmm. to a performer and not acknowledging what that original thing is that made them drawn to that occupation right Yeah. And it's not, you know, it's touring life is a hard life. It's hard on your body, oh. your, your soul, everything. It's one of those things that's like, you, you have to go through so much in order to get like to be on stage. Yeah. It's not for the faint of heart. Yeah. And it's also not cheap. So for it to, to be like, be like, well, it's about the money. It's not about the money. You right. lose a lot of money right. doing it. Oh, I mean, yeah. I've told people, you know, I'm, I'm pretty smart. I could have figured out probably 10 other ways to make a really good living mm-hmm. that would not involve you know, a different hotel room every night or, or just, you know, uh, all the things. I mean, there's a lot, there's lots of ways to, to, uh, figure out how to make money. Um, this was the only thing that, that I couldn't put down, mm-hmm. you know, that I just could not put down. Years go by like days, sometimes the days go by like years, and I don't know which one I So I kind of want to talk about your first record then, uh, The Secret of Life in 1996. What was it like recording that for the first time? I'm grimacing because it's very hard for me to listen to it now. It's very hard. There are so many things. If if I were a more backward-looking person, I would go back and re-record this because I think Mm -hmm. there's some really great songs on it, but I would would re-record it because it's just, it's, there's so much about the production that is sort of of the time. Um, and yeah, it definitely has like a very late nineties production. It's feel, definitely, I really yeah. enjoy it, but I understand what you're talking about. Well, late nineties is, is, is kind of a happening thing now. Yeah, so right. maybe it's coming back around. I don't know. It's that pre loudness wars kind of thing. Yes. And you're still involved with analog exactly. to a certain degree. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. But you know, I always think uh, with records, I think there's, 
there's two things in particular that really kind of date records and it's the drum sound and the guitar sound and oh, both yeah. of those are like very 90s you know <laughs> but um but that aside it was incredibly exciting to make that record mm -hmm. i i had a record label that really just totally trusted me probably probably not a good judgment on their part but they they did they let me make the record i wanted to make they let me put songs on it which were you know, right on the edge, if not over the edge, of what would be acceptable to country radio at the time. That was also probably a bad judgment on their part. But I think that what was happening in country music at the time was, you know, my, actually my record label had had, had really um, been largely a big part of the reason that uh, Mary Chapin Carpenter had broken pretty big as an artist. Mm. He was the head of her label, CBS, at the time. And he started this new label. And so I think he he thought that was the way things were going to go. And we all were hoping that that was going to be still a part of country music, that kind of literate, mm -hmm. you know, um, intelligent lyrics. And, and, um, and right at the time that I was making that record, it kind of went, you know, Shania Twain happened. And mm -hmm. it, Garth Brooks was happening and more and more and it was kind of like well are we going to have these two branches of country are we still going to have the you know the Chapin Carpenter and Lyle Lovitz and Nancy Griffiths or, or are we going to Shania Twain land all of us like what's going to happen and and the problem was I think too that I would write a song like the title song of that mm -hmm. album The Secret of Life and Faith Hill recorded it and it was great for Faith Hill to have one of those songs on her album, just mm -hmm. one like offbeat kind of song, but I had 11. Yeah. And that's, that's a bit hard for radio to swallow. So I made that record and then I went on the, 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 the country radio tour, which every artist at the time had to do, which was, boy, talk about brutal. I mean, it was like, two, three cities a day, sometimes several flights a day, just get off the plane, drive to the radio station, go sit in the office while you're, you and you know your radio promotion guy who's with you plays the new single for the program director. Mm -hmm. And first of all, that's excruciating for me. I mean, I don't want to be sitting in a room while somebody judges my work. Like basically yeah. that's what they're doing. They're saying. And you're right there too. Yeah. You're sitting right there and yeah. they're deciding whether they're going to play it or not. And overwhelmingly, I mean, I just had some really bad experiences. Overwhelmingly I got, um, Oh yeah. My wife really loves your album. We're not going to play it, but. And at the same time that they're saying that women are their primary audience, you know, mm -hmm. at the time they, that, that was kind of a, a known thing. It's like, well, we have, you know, 55, 60% women. Well, if your wife loves it, then why aren't you playing it for her? Why aren't you going to play? I mean, I even sat in a, in a, in a radio, in an office with a program director. And when you were old was the first single, which also was probably ill-advised. It's a sad ballad, mm -hmm. you know, and the, the program director cried. During the song, I thought, oh, my God, you know, yeah. we're, we've got a friend in K, whatever they are. And 
at the end he said i can't play this i can't it's you know it's it's not up tempo it's not we only play one female an hour that was the other thing you know and then the other thing i got a lot was there was there was a lot of bad kind of bad blood between um these you, you know you'd go out to cincinnati or wherever and there was a program director and he thought that everyone in the nashville record business was making squillions of dollars and uh, this radio promotion guy that was with me came from radio and oh here you are now you're with a record label so you're probably making you know and they would take advantage of that they would um order the most expensive thing on the menu if you took them to dinner and they they just there was a lot of that sort of behavior mm-hmm. and it was it was icky. The whole thing was pretty icky. And I, I got more than a few times also, um, I literally was sitting on the air live with a guy who said, so you wrote all these hit songs for all these artists. Now you want to, now you want to be an artist, which first of all, I'm mm. sorry, you are, or you're not, you know, Yeah. but now you want to be an artist. What do you want? All the money. And again, I just, you know, I think I still have PTSD from that whole experience because it was just so awful. Um, so it was kind of, you know, the making of the album was an incredible, great experience. I got to go in the studio, which is my favorite place in the world, mm. do just make these songs, you know, f- fully realized. And then I got out there to to kind of sell it to radio and just, it was just, it was awful. Yeah, it, it it sounds wholly unpleasant. Um, I don't know if you've read that book, Her Country by Marissa Moss, um, but she does a really great job in like detailing about behavior with radio, like radio promotion yeah. and all yeah. that, especially for women in country music in the 90s. Well, we we thought it was getting better. Mm-hmm. I mean, m- myself and my 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 peers, you know, like two, two of my dearest friends are Matresa Berg and Kim mm-hmm. Ritchie. And and we were all at, at different times, you know, songwriters or songwriter artists. We all at different times had record deals. And um, but we were, you know, we were also song, songwriters who very visibly contributed um, songs to the women that were really at the top of the charts, like Trisha Yearwood and Faith Hill and mm-hmm. uh, Martina McBride and people like that. And so we thought it was getting better. And we also thought, you know, that it was it was quite clear that the women artists, um, because they only played one or two an hour, they they were kind of forced to to go outside the boundaries for for songs. And like a song that, um, you know, like Matresa's song, Strawberry Wine, mm-hmm. it, there's so many counts, or Independence Day, my song, Independence Day, both of those songs, there were so many counts against those songs. Independence Day was very dark. Yeah. Uh, it was also an, a relatively unknown artist. Martina was not that known at the time. Um, in Matrace's case, Strawberry Wine was uh, five, almost five minutes long. It was a waltz. It was slow. Again, Dina Carter was not, you know. And yet those songs, they were just strong enough that they just powered through all that. And they became songs from that era that are probably, I would argue, more well-known than, you know, I don't know. 80, 90% of the others, because those, those women had to, they had, that's the kind of song they had to find, you Mm -hmm. know, to, to get, 
through the noise, yeah. through the radio noise. So yeah, they had to hit harder in order. Yeah, and really... we, and and we thought, you know, it's getting better. It's going to get better. It's going to get better. And I feel like now, what is this? You know, thirty years later, it's probably worse. Yeah, it's which uh... is very disheartening. Let freedom. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back with Gretchen Peters shortly. At Americana Podcast, it is our mission to define and expand the reaches of Americana music. With help from our friend and Lester Bangs level contributor, Will Vote, this is Will's Pick. Break My Heart by Bella White from the album Among Other Things. We're moving to Calgary, Alberta for this month's pick. While Canada has produced many world-class musicians and songwriters, including Neil Young, Leonard Cohen, and Joni Mitchell, as well as members of the band, Calgary can only claim Wilf Carter as its own. Although Wilf had an active music career from 1930 to 1992, is a member of the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame, and wrote many songs including the unforgettable There's a Love Knot in My Lariat, he's not exactly a household name today. Until recently, he was the best that Calgary had to offer in terms of musical talent. Today, Calgary has a bright new musical light in singer-songwriter Bella White. Influenced by her father, a Virginia native who played in bluegrass bands for much of his childhood, she began playing guitar at eight years old and banjo soon after. Bella grew up in folk and bluegrass festivals and found her own voice early enough to release her first album, Just Like Leaving, while she was still in her teens. Although very much within traditional bluegrass stations, the record is also a coming-of-age statement for a fine singer-songwriter. The influences of Joni Mitchell and John Prine can be heard throughout her songs. Now, at just 22 years old, Bella has recorded her second album, Among Other Things, which expands on the voice and sound of her debut record. In an effort to move on from the sparse singer-songwriter sound of the first, Bella enlisted a group of talented California musicians to up the tempo and scope of the record. The standout track on the new record is Break My Heart. The way that Bella describes it in her own words is, of all the songs I've written, Break My Heart is probably the one that is most explicitly about getting dumped, she points out. But then once we got back in the studio, it grew into a bit of a rager. It's a heartbreaker, but it's also fun and epic. An epic rager it is, as well as a great song on a well-covered subject, thus making it Will's Pick. You continue to make records, though. You have 14, I believe. Or... I've lost count, but that's <laughs> yeah. probably, that sounds about right. Yeah. And you continue to make them even after this experience, though. And so what was it like going back into the studio for your second record or even well, your third? Well, one thing is that we didn't have major label money. Mm-hmm. You know, we had to figure out. Oh, how... that got gutted about the early 2000s as well, right? Yeah, well, yeah. I didn't. I wasn't on my label. Mm-hmm. Any, I, my label was so great 
they let me have my master back to mm-hmm. my first album, which never happens. No. They, but they, they let me have it. They understood that I had to just go off and do, do my thing. Mm-hmm. And so I got that master back, which was a great thing. But I didn't have, you know, the budget to make, certainly not the budget I had on the first album. So I had to figure out how to do it. Luckily, I had a publisher. I was, I was at Sony Music at that point, had been for a while. And every time I went in the studio for Sony just to make demos, song demos, which they would pitch to artists, I always looked at it like, well, I'm going in the studio, so I'm going to learn something. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm, I'm going to practice. In some sense, I was like always practicing making a record. Like, what can I do on this demo budget to make this thing really sound like a record if I were going to go in and make a record? And they were, uh, you know, I had a budget that I had to stick to, but they were very tolerant. They let me do whatever I want essentially, which I've, I've been blessed all along with publishers and record labels that were like, do your thing. Um, so I had the bass tracks on some of these demos for what could mm-hmm. be my next record. Um, and then, uh, you know, I paid for some of the, you know, the overdubs that I wanted to do, but I mean, I made it on a shoestring compared to the first record because I had the demos already. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think uh, we were still recording in studios then we, there, mm-hmm. were, there, I don't think there really was home recording to, to the extent that a it few existed. years later yeah. it existed. So we were using the Sony studios and I was probably paying, you know, I probably had a sweetheart kind of rate, you know, mm-hmm. cause it was my publisher, but they had a world-class studio. So yeah. that was not a, an issue. And I made the record on, um, like I said, a shoestring budget compared to the first one. And I owned it. Um, and I licensed it. I, and also at this point, I had my first record, which did not do well here, had mm-hmm. done pretty well in the UK. This feels like a common story. I've kind of yeah. come to hear again and again, especially in like the folk to country space. Is yes. that the UK They're, adopts the music a lot better they, than domestic markets. Uh, you know, I, I can't put my finger on all the reasons why, you know, it often works for mm-hmm. artists like me over there. I, I know that like when my first record came out and, and wasn't doing well, um, I had a friend who was in Nancy Griffith's band who said, you need to go to the UK, go, they will get you. They'll totally get you. And then once you go, keep going back. And the key mm-hmm. was going back over and over again. I mean, mm-hmm. you can't, just tour someplace like that and then go back in 10 years. It doesn't work like that. But I had nothing else going on. And what I found the first time I went over there, first of all, I had a, I had a label over there, my, the, the um, associate label with my U.S. label. And they really promoted the record. And several um, important radio people played on a bus to St. Cloud mm-hmm. a lot on, the ra- on radio, too. And that helped. But what I found when I went over there is just all the things that were working against me here worked for me there. Like there was nobody saying, are you folk or are you country? You know, Mm -hmm. there's nobody saying, are you a songwriter or are you a singer? There was nobody trying to put me in a box. They, they, uh, the audiences there were really hungry for sort of that breed of sort of literate country music. Mm -hmm. 
they were super well informed about, you know, players and producers and that and just every, they were, you know, I think because they were so hungry for it and because mm -hmm. there was a pretty small market for it, the people who really loved it knew everything. They, mm -hmm. they, 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 you know, I'd go over there and they knew the words and they knew, you know, so-and-so played on your album, you know, everything about it. And I just thought, this is like walking through the looking glass. This is like, you know, I go play some radio listening, listener appreciation show and nobody gives a shit, you mm -hmm. know, uh, that I'm on stage. And then I come here, I want to come back. Yeah, you know, I, this is, I feel like I found my people. And so I did go back. I went back every time, certainly every time I had a new album out, and I started going back on a kind of almost a yearly basis. And then at, at one point in the middle 2000s, you know, I started going on a couple runs a year because there would be festivals and, you know, and I built a really large audience there. But um, but it is a common story, I think. And I think it's because there is a difference in um, there's just a difference in the in the, in the audiences and who who loves a certain kind of country music there and there's room there's just room for um things that get shoved aside when you s sort of super commercialize it like mm -hmm. we've done in in the states so i think that was that was part of it too was i got all kinds of listeners i mean still to this day in the uk i there are those fans who will say you know i really don't love country music but mm -hmm. i love your songs mm -hmm. so okay yeah. that's exactly who you you want to reach right and your 2015 record blackbird got a uk americano award yeah I, right they it was it got two actually mm -hmm. i think it was it was best international album in best international album and and i think maybe song mm -hmm. that was the other one yeah yeah it's and it's a really really great record and and Robert did pass along some questions for me about that one in particular, which is, uh, if you don't mind, mm -mm. Um, these are verbatim his words. Uh, he's really interested in your precise word choices and specifically. And he says, I refer to you and, other, uh, and others like you as a very small club, a word perfect songwriter. Uh, an example is in your song Blackburn to use the word, you use the phrase whiskey on your voice as opposed to whiskey on your breath. Um, the phrase creates such a more dramatic tension for the narrator by association and for the listener. Did you write on your breath and then think that doesn't really say it? Or do you really start to look for tighter and deeper descriptions in your songwriting? I, I, I guess what he's really kind of asking is, was that conscious? Yeah. You know, was that a conscious choice? And it's hard to answer that. He does that. dissect phrase by phrase a lot more often. Well, it's it's hard to answer what's conscious because mm -hmm. I always, and when I teach songwriting workshops, I tell students this. I mm -hmm. always am trying to get my subconscious to, to co-write with me mm -hmm. in a sense. And like if something, usually a phrase like that will come out of my subconscious and my the other half of my brain will say, but that doesn't quite make sense. And the hopefully the intuitive part of me, my subconscious will say, no, it doesn't. But I invite you to consider that it's more powerful. You know, I mean, I think all those kind of uh, 
years ago I had in an interview, I had somebody ask me about mm. a particular line that I wrote that I felt was a really one of my best lines mm -hmm. where, you know, like, where were you, what were you thinking when you wrote that? And I realized I have no memory of mm -hmm. writing it. And then I started thinking about like other lines that I felt were really good. And I realized I have no memory. I don't know. I can remember other parts of writing that song, but I can't remember that. And then what dawned on me was that was because I was fully in this sort of subconscious flow state where those kind of phrases just pop out. And if it says, you know, whiskey in your voice, oh, wait a minute. No, that's not factually maybe right or logically maybe right, but it's so, I get, you know, I you, get a picture of, yeah. I get, I get a sound, of, right. you know, of it. Um, so I think that that's, I think what I, I guess the long answer is <laughs> I've learned to honor those almost non sequiturs when they come out. I, I really pay attention to them and honor them because I think that the, the wiser writer is my subconscious. to another question of his, which is, he says, given songwriting is both a God-given talent and a skill, and as time goes by, does one overtake the other? And how do you continue to be inspired? God, that's a great question. Because I think the longer you do this, in, in a sense, the harder it gets. Mm -hmm. um, I, I was just recently talking to a couple of veteran songwriters, friends of mine, who are you know, also heroes of mine, songwriting heroes of mine. And we, we were talking about, you know, things don't come as easily um, now for us. And yet, you know, we were talking about, is that, is, that, is that an age thing? Or is it that the better you get at it, the farther away the target you're trying to hit gets? Like, you, you know, I'm less satisfied uh, with what I come up with, certainly than I was in my twenties and thirties. Mm -hmm. Like I was kind of, I was a little lazy then. You know, if it rhymed and it felt good, and it, you know, I mean, I, I, I would, I was able, I was facile with words, I was good, but I could have been better, and I, I was kind of lazy, and also things came faster, and mm -hmm. I don't know the answer to that, but. Um, but I think the second part of that que of his question mm -hmm. is staying inspired, which, which is, is that's kind of the key. Which is another way of looking that to looking at that to me is who who is the you know fifteen year old? Where is that fifteen year old in you mm -hmm. that was just burning up with it? You know, yeah. find that person and hold on to her because that's what's going to keep you going and um and i'm at a i'm i'm at a place particularly right now probably you know for the first time in decades because i've recently retired from you know long haul touring mm -hmm. um 
and I'm I, I'm kind of at a place that I haven't been at for such a long time that I can barely remember where I I have no agenda for writing. Like I don't, I'm not writing my next album. I'm not, I have no agenda. And I'm hoping very much that that being in that state, which is new to me and strange, is going to get me more in touch with that 15-year-old that was burning up with it. Like maybe I, you know, the idea of writing a song with no agenda. What if I just wrote a song for the sake of writing a song, you know, mm-hmm. I haven't felt that way in, like I said, decades. So I'm hoping that that um, moves me towards something, towards whatever the next thing is that's going to get me excited about writing. Because I, I will admit to having a pretty contentious relationship with writing. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't find it fun or enjoyable or easy. Uh, the more I do it, the older I get, the harder I find it. However, I do feel like I'm better mm-hmm. at it. But it's work. Yeah. It's a lot of work, and I some a, a great portion of that work I don't enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't enjoy, especially the part where I haven't written in a while, and I go into my writing room and I just beat my head against the wall for a week, and nothing happens, and I go through the whole. Am I, you know, am I a fraud? Are they finally going to figure out I don't know what I'm doing? Am I, you know, am I, or am I just tapped out? Am I just dried up? What, you know, I, I hate that. You know, I'd rather not ever go through that. But I guess the only thing about experience is that you realize that's just part of the deal. Mm-hmm. Just get through it, sit through it, sit with it, and something will happen. And soon you'll be drinking out of the creative fire hose. You yeah. know? Right. I was going to ask, uh, you know, if knowing you have the ability to write really great songs, does that sometimes get in the way? Like, well, do you get scared of what you've done? I don't think I really do. I mean, I, I'm not trying to, you know, I, I, I'm, I think I'm blessed with a really good set of blinders. Mm-hmm. Like, once I am in the writing mode, I got those blinders on. I'm not looking at Independence Day or... I mean, I knew when I wrote that I was never, ever going to write a song like that again. Because mm-hmm. it would be impossible. It was like winning a lottery. or It was just like, that's never going to happen. And, of course, every, you know, A&R person, my publisher, everybody was like, what we really want is another Independence Day. That. It's not going to happen, folks, you know. So I think I knew that, and I've got these these really good blinders when I'm actually writing, uh, which which keep me from looking at anything else that I've done because it's just, um, I don't know, I'm just, I'm lucky to not, that's not one of my, the ghosts that follows me into the writing room. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'm more likely to be susceptible to the, I have nothing to say. I've I've got nothing. And, you know, usually that's just because I'm in the first part of the... I write in, in kind of... I don't write every day. I write in kind of binges, which is... It has its good parts and its bad parts. One of the bad parts is the first part of that. You know, if, if I go back into the writing room for a chunk of time, like three weeks, that first week is going to be rough. Mm-hmm. It's just going to be rough. There's just no way around it. It's just getting the clogs out of the, you know the plumbing kind of thing. And then once that's over, then I'm off to the races. But, um, but no, I don't, I think, I, I mean, I think those blinders have really served me well because I've never looked back and thought, oh God, I'll never write a song as good as that one again. You know, I, I, I don't, 
more what I'm looking for is just some an idea that excites me and that I especially an idea that I feel like hasn't been said mm -hmm. before. Those are hard to find. But, They're very hard to find. It does. Yeah. That's very exciting to me. If I come, if I hit on an idea and I think, I don't think anybody's really talked about this mm -hmm. or not in the way that I want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Are there people who are working now that you're paying attention to that are bringing new ideas to the table or new stories that maybe we haven't really heard before? Oh gosh. Um, yes. I mean, there, I, I mean, I'm there, there are several young women that, I follow and think are really great. I think Emily Scott Robinson is so good. She's so good. She's such a good writer. Mm -hmm. She's a great artist. Um, I think one, just an all around great songwriter. She's all, she's proving it already and she's proved everything she ever needs to prove, but we're going to look back in 10 years and say, you know, Brandy Clark is just, she's like a Carol King. Oh yeah. She's, you know, she's just that great. Of a a true she, force majeure absolutely, in songwriting. Absolutely. Um, um, Stephen Wilson mm -hmm. kills me with his, you know, it's like I heard uh, Holler from the Holler. The mm -hmm. first, a, a journalist friend of mine sent that to me because yes. it was about abuse. And he said he, he said that Stephen had told him that Independence Day was a big influence on him when he was a kid this is what happens when you get old enough people say i listened to your record and i was six years old you know yeah. but he sent it sent it to me and i i emailed him back and i said that raised the hair on my neck that record of stevens mm -hmm. like nothing i've heard since copperhead road and i heard copy copperhead road before it was released to the public because i was at the same publishing company as steve um and I've subsequently listened to, you know, the songs he's, you know, that are coming out. Like, I can't wait for his album to come out and I can hear the whole thing. But everything he's released is just so well written and so felt and so mm -hmm. real. And yeah, I, I mean, I have lots of reason to be optimistic at what the next generation down from me, which is, I guess, what those people are, um, at what they're doing. And I think... You know, I think those songs will find their place. It's not going to be ever like it was. I mean, God, we were so lucky mm -hmm. for that little brief window of time in the 90s. People like me and Matresa and Kim Ritchie, we were so lucky that that there was this sort of, you know, there, there was us and we were feeding songs to these artists that were right in the mainstream and it was this, and you know, it was just this wonderful time when songs of substance could get on the radio. Mm -hmm. And you really could believe, and it was true, that a really, really, truly great song, not a good one, but a great one, would cut through the noise. And and it, and it, it, it was true. And I think some of us thought it would go on forever. And, um, of course, it didn't. Um, so I don't know, you know, I, I mean... It's never going to be like that, I don't think, or at least not anytime soon. But mm -hmm. these young artists that I just mentioned and their peers are going to, they're going to find a way. Those songs are going to cut through because they're just too great. They're There's, just too great not to. They really are. They, there's so many like great sticking points about them. And I think one thing that I it feels kind of noticeable, especially in the kind of more mainstream space, is that there's lacking a lot of narrative where there's 
Mm. Now they're like in the folk and Americana spaces, narrative still exists. Exactly. It's still alive. Exactly. Um, and I'm obviously I'm a huge proponent of, of that. I mean, when I teach songwriting workshops, I really focus on narrative. I, I focus on character development. I focus on doing the backstory on characters in songs because I really believe you have to know everything about a character before you can write truthfully and authentically and have it, you know, have your listener feel like that's a real person you're describing. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, I'm really big on that. And I'm, I really believe that that's important. Even if it's just a, a first person, me, you love song. I still think there, that means there's two characters mm -hmm. going on. There's still a narrative. Um, most of it might be not revealed in the song, but it's gotta be there for you to write believably. And, but yeah, I think a lot of a lot of songwriting, you know, especially if you turn on country radio these days, it feels like ad copy. Mm -hmm. It feels like jingles, yeah. you know, lifestyle jingles. Yeah, basically. product placement. Exactly. Understandable. You mentioned doing songwriting uh, workshops. What would you tell songwriters now who are just looking to be creative, looking to write? I think I would say become a better writer mm -hmm. above and beyond everything not that you know fi finding your tribe is important uh finding outlets for your music whether it's you playing your own songs or um you know finding artists that want to record your song wh whatever it is but but if you don't if you don't work on becoming a better writer um the rest of it won't matter and 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 ultimately you know, well into my songwriting career, like 2010, 2011, mm -hmm. I had a, in 2010, I had a, a, a year, you know, one of those years where like you blow up your life several times and, and it, was, it was a very momentous year for mm -hmm. me and ultimately a, a great thing because it, it was one of those years that swept away all the crap and and I was very tuned into what really mattered and I simultaneously not coincidentally realized I wasn't writing well enough like I was resting on my sort of facility with words and just coasting a little bit and just not digging and also especially not revealing enough, not, um, I was, I was guarding my, mm -hmm. myself in a way. And I made a really, um, conscious decision that I wasn't going to do that anymore. And a lot of it was prompted by songwriters that I loved that who, who maybe very wildly varying levels of success. I mean, some of them, you may have never heard of and some mm -hmm. of them not, but I just remember thinking, I want to, I want to write that deeply. Mm -hmm. I, I need to figure out how to do that. And I decided that what I needed to do was peel away those layers of protective tissue, whatever they were, open up my chest cage and say, okay, here's what I think about at three in the morning mm -hmm. and really be vulnerable with that. And my writing got a lot better. I in in my own estimation. I mean, I in my own estimation, I stepped up with starting with "Hello Coral World," 
with those next three albums stepped up what I would consider the quality of my songs. And the big lesson that I learned there was that when you reveal that much of yourself, people aren't looking at you, they're looking at themselves. Mm -hmm. The reason those songs, those kinds of songs um, resonate with people is not because they're looking at you going, ooh, she's a mess, you know. They're, they've had those thoughts at three in the morning. They've woken up in the middle of the night and thought, Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm I'm a mess. I'm a shit show. What you know, they, people. It's very human. Yeah. Um, and I and it made me brave when I realized that. It made me brave. It made me realize, this isn't about me. It's about writing something that's that deep that can reach right out into somebody else's chest cage and pull that out of them. Mm-hmm. And that's when my writing, in my own estimation, got to another level. And that's what I would say to songwriters today, which is. You have to get there and it's hard. It's really, really hard. It takes some of some of it just takes life experience, just the years, the knocks, the 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 crap we're all gonna go through in the course of living. Mm-hmm. And um, it also takes bravery. It takes takes bravery to say, you know, I'm gonna say this thing that I'm kind of afraid to say. What I really tell students is if 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 your idea is making you uncomfortable go towards the discomfort because that's where the gold is Mm -hmm. and all of that will make you a better writer and all of that in turn will make you a lot harder to ignore tomorrow is out of sight yesterday's dead and gone you never Going on from country, because this is Americana podcast, we do talk about genre specifications. And one of the things is like, we have people who say that they're not a part of Americana, we do, or and we'd like to get <laughs> feedback on what you think it is, if it is a space that really exists, or if it's just a kind of in between for not making it on country. It's so fraught, mm-hmm. you know, the, I mean, I've, I guess I'd like to get what your definition of it is first. I think Americana music, ha- it has to have a roots music element. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's really an acoustic element to it. There's also the storytelling aspect of it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's dominated by singer-songwriters. In other mm-hmm. words, artists that are de- delivering their own songs. Mm-hmm. Not that that's a necessity, but it's it's pretty well dominated by by that. So I think those are kind of the elements. Mm-hmm. Having said that, you know, one of the hurdles that I really had to clear, mm-hmm. and it took a long time, was when I started making my subsequent albums after mm-hmm. 2000, or really starting in kind of 2007. Um, I changed booking agents. I had, I, I, I was not with my, ex anymore who was really very focused on country radio he had been managing me you know Mm -hmm. i was i had just made a total left turn and released my burnt toast and offerings album and 
That was in 2007. 2007. And I had a new booking agent who was booking me in kind of Americana and folk venues. And I was going to Folk Alliance and I was going to, you know, doing mm-hmm. all of the, those things that you have to do. And I was getting a whole lot of, oh, she's a Nashville songwriter? No, we're not. We don't. We're not interested in that. So there again, it was like just another box that I felt yeah. like I was in. And it took me, I had to do a lot of work, play a lot of opening slots, do, do a lot of work to convince those people I was not what they thought I was. Mm-hmm. I think they thought I was going to go out there and, and then I wrote this and Faith Hill did that, you know, yeah, and yeah. I really. Guitar pool style. I, yeah. I, if I do a show today, I, I maybe do one song that was a hit for someone else. And I don't, it's not because it was a hit for someone else. It's because it's a song mm-hmm. I want to play. In other words, I, that, I don't go out there doing the and then i wrote you yeah, know kind of right. deal but i think that was i think that was what people had in their their minds that i was that i was all about and um that was frustrating for a number of years but i i finally sort of punched my way out of that box too yeah. but i think um all that is to say i feel like musically i definitely fit into whatever you're going to call the americana genre mhm but just because of the perceptions that people had about me, I was kind of getting you know, sidelined. I was, yeah, Again. I was like, oh, you're not, you're not really what we, what we are all about. Mm-hmm. So I'm very leery about, you know, yeah. I, I, years before I moved to Nashville, I worked in a record store. And we used to have these arguments among the, you know, employees mm-hmm. of the record store, like, you know, about genre, like what, Yeah. you know, cause every, the whole record store separated up by genre. I'm like, yeah, where do you put Joni Mitchell? Does she go in jazz or folk or pop or rock or, you know, I mean, right, like, yeah. she could be, if you put like her Mingus album mm-hmm. in, if she's in the folk section, it, like what does right, that that's make a Mingus record. Sense? Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. So I'm, I, I hate them. I hate them. Yeah. I just think they should be alphabetical. Understandable. Yeah. yeah. That's a common take here. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah, it's a very common take. Well, you know, in all fairness, it's like looking at your timeline in particular, you're at these like huge cusp moments every time, whether it's coming here in 88 or putting your first record out in 96. It's always like right on the edge of something major changing. And with Americana. (laughs) I wonder what that says about my. And like the AMA was formed in 2002. And like you said, Burnt Toast and Offerings comes out in 2007. Mm-hmm. It's still very much in like these formative spaces. Oh, yeah, definitely. I have two questions left, which is you mentioned that you have kind of laid off of heavy touring. Yeah. Um, so, Sound familiar? Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, what can you do with a songwriter that needs something to do? Um, <laughs> well, I'm building a house, so... <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's kind of like, you know, what they say about addicts, you know, it's like you have to replace the addiction with yeah. with something else. So, yeah, you, with a songwriter, you've got to you got to get get busy doing something, you know. Yeah. Um, but really, so you're building a house. Is there anything else that's like on the horizon or that you're working on? Or? Well, I mean, what my my motivation, I mean, there's lots of reasons why we're not doing the extended touring anymore, but. One of the things that I really hoped would come out of it was that I would have the space in my life to see what doors just open. Mm -hmm. Because I I think 
I think we get in, we, I say we, um, touring singer-songwriters get into this feast or famine, and musicians too, yeah. you know. We, we think if we say no to one thing, that's it. It, yeah. it all, it's just going to shut down, mm -hmm. you know. Well, that actually has not proven to be true. It never is true. But we, we get so used to that feast or famine mentality, we think, you know, if I don't take this gig, they'll never ask me back or, you know, whatever it might be. And I, when I finally got to the place where I was ready, like emotionally, spiritually, and in every other way to really say, okay, I'm stopping. My hope was that I would be able to be still long enough to, to notice another door opening, like writing a book or mm -hmm. writing a song with no agenda. Like I, like I talked about, or, right. you know, I don't know, I don't know what it's going to be. Um, and what I'm enjoying right now is just the possibility, the, the not knowing the possibility. I, I think, you know, everyone says to me, oh, you're never going to stop writing. Mm -hmm. You're a writer. You're never going to stop writing. And I just felt I, for so long, I felt like saying, just watch me, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> watch me not write. Yeah. But they're probably right. And there's probably something that I'm going to write, but I'm really going to enjoy the delicious time right now when I have no um, sense of guilt about it. Mm -hmm. Like I used to feel such crippling guilt if I hadn't written a song in a month or something, you know, it's so great not to feel that. And yeah. I, I, I'm just hoping that that means that I'm making more space for something, whatever it might be. Um, That'll happen. I mean, all along the way, the last, I don't know, 10 or so years, I've been writing little pieces of, pro like, things for magazines, online magazine. You know, I've been writing little uh, pieces, essays, things like that. I like doing that. I don't know if I, I kind of do it when it comes along, but um, I'm wide open to whatever it might be. i got to get the house built first. Though. Yeah, that's <laughs> got to get that one done. Um, and then our final question, we're going to end up, we like to end on a high note, which is we at Americana podcast, think it is an absolute tragedy that an instrument as beautiful as the B3 is named the B3. If you could come up with any other name for the B3 organ, the honking machine, the honking machine. Yeah. I mean, God, what a, you're so right. B3 <laughs> sounds like a, you know, like a, Chinese restaurant menu <laughs> yeah. selection or like on Grubhub or, yeah. you know, like I'll take item B3, please. Yeah. Yeah. The honking machine. Yeah. yeah. The honking machine. That's yeah. great. Well, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, we, I really appreciate you taking the time to oh, meet with me today. Oh, it's been really, really fun. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you so much, Gretchen. Absolutely. At this time, we would like to thank our guest, Gretchen Peters. Please remember that if you want to contribute to the show, check out Tip Top Jar slash Americana Podcast. Americana Podcast is brought to you by Keen Productions, produced and edited by Clara Rose, with assistance from Brett Brock, and original music by Kim Warner. Until next time, let the music play. Music